You can go ahead and turn uh, to our scripture for this morning, which is in Genesis chapter 4. We are continuing to look at some of the foundational truths and principles uh, from scripture that undergird our lives, and especially how we find them in these very opening chapters of the Bible, where we see a foundation laid for our faith. And you got away with something with Wes last week because he only read, I think, two or three verses to you. So we're going to make up for that by reading a whole chapter this week. And it's the chapter Genesis 4. The beginning of it is going to be pretty familiar. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry, and why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground, and now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. To Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mehujael. Mehujael fathered Mehushael, and Mehushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the first was Adah, the name of the other was Zillah. Adah bore Jabal, he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain, he was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. The sister of Tubal-Cain was Naamah. Lamech said to his wives, Adah and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Now, obviously the beginning of that was very familiar to us. We could go any number of directions with this passage, um, but one of the things we have here with Cain and Abel is the first explicit description in the Bible of people worshiping God. And we can learn a lot about worship 
from actually from studying this passage. So that's the direction I would like to take us in today. Now, when we think about worship, think about the act of worship, there are really two different realms of our lives in which this happens. One of, one of them is what we might call formal worship. That's what we've been doing together here today in a Sunday morning service. We're worshiping God, we're praising God together, uh, giving to God, all the things that God's people do when they gather in his name. And also sometimes you do these things in private, right? In our private devotional lives, we worship, we might pray to God, might even sing to God. These are what we might call specifically religious activities, religious activities, spiritual activities, we might say. Things like praise, uh, prayer, in the Old Testament certainly sacrifice, um, financial giving, etc. Things like that that we do to honor God in a more formal way. And yet there's another side of life. There's also the idea that all of life can be worshipped. In fact, I would, I would suggest that with your whole life, 24-7, when you're at home, at work, at school, in your recreational life, you are worshiping. Now, you might not be worshiping God, but you're worshiping something. You can worship God in that way, and we're going to talk about that. But, but again, that kind of worship takes place outside of this room, outside of this experience, outside of formal worship services, or what we might call religious activities, and yet it can still be worship. So the question becomes, what do we learn about worship from this chapter, and, and what difference should that make in how we worship God, both in the formal religious sense, but also in the, the everyday general sense? And if we're going to get anywhere, we, we first have to kind of figure out what's going on here with Cain and with his offering. Specifically, we better figure out what's wrong with it. Now, uh, the, the Scripture here is not real specific on a lot of things. And there are several different ideas out there as to why Cain's offering was not acceptable to God. You're probably familiar with a couple of them. Um, go ahead. Yeah, um, yeah. Sorry, I'm looking at the back and it's way ahead of the front. I'm getting used to this still. But it has been suggested that um, the Cain's offering was unacceptable to God because it was not a blood sacrifice, whereas Abel brought a blood sacrifice to the Lord. Uh, I find this to be very unlikely. Uh, the Hebrew word for what Cain and Abel are doing here is not the word sacrifice, it's simply the word offering. They're bringing a gift of some kind to God, and there's no indication here this is supposed to be a sacrifice for sin or anything like that. And in fact, throughout the Old Testament, you will see many times when God's people offer him things that are not atonement sacrifices or blood sacrifices, and not necessarily having anything to do with sin. There are fellowship offerings, there are free will offerings. Uh, thanksgiving offerings. These are not to atone for sin, but simply to glorify God and to celebrate people's relationship with God. And yes, some of these offerings were animals that were slain, uh, but many others were also things like grain offerings and even drink offerings. So uh, assuming this is the kind of offering that Cain and Abel are making here, they're just making an offering to the Lord, a gift to God, it would be perfectly fine for Cain as a farmer to bring God the fruit of his labors in the field. Now, that's one suggestion. Another suggestion has been that while Abel had given God the first and the best of his sheep, that Cain had not done the same thing. He had kind of given God his leftovers or at least not his best. Uh, I think this idea has a little bit more merit because, yes, the text does seem to make a point that, that saying that Abel's offering was the first of the sheep and that sort of thing. Uh, on the other hand, it does not explicitly say that Cain's was not. 
and that it was somehow subpar in quality. And in fact, the wording that it uses here leaves open the possibility that this could indeed be Cain's first fruits. It's not explicitly stated that Cain was holding back his best, so perhaps that's true. It it makes some sense. Let's leave that one on the shelf for now um, because we can read between the lines and get that, but we have to be careful sometimes reading between the lines with these things. What we can do, however, without reading between the lines is to look at Cain's response to the Lord's rejection of his offering because this is indeed very revealing. And in fact, we may even get a hint of what's going on way back in verse 1 when Cain is born. Did you notice what Eve said upon giving birth to Cain? I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That sounds more like the dating game or something, but, but I, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. Cain was obviously going to grow up to become a man. But, but think about that, that language. In fact, the King James translates it more literally, I have gotten a man from the Lord. Isn't that a kind of weird way to describe the arrival of your child? You know, anybody bring their baby to, you know, baby dedication here before the church, and I'll say, congratulations for getting a man from the Lord. We don't say it like that. The emphasis here is on Eve's action and what she has gotten from God, what she has obtained for God. And in fact, Cain's name, what the name that she gives him, sounds like the Hebrew word for obtained or acquired. It can even be translated purchased sometimes. Now, later on, when Eve gives birth to Seth, she's going to use different phraseology. She's going to put the emphasis on God's action. Seth is a provision, even a gift from God, whereas Cain is more of an acquisition. It's like Eve is saying, look what I got. Now, this may be a rather subtle point, but it's borne out later on in Cain's attitude toward God when Cain does not get God's approval for his offering. Consider this. When you give an offering, in fact, let's just put it in human terms here, when you give somebody a gift, maybe even an appreciation gift of some kind, okay? What do you expect in return? Let's say that this spring, um, the ministry staff uh, got together, and and we got together in my office without Donna there, and we decided we were going to give Donna a gift for Administrative Professionals Day. And so I've got Courtney and TJ and Wes in there, and I say something like, you know, we'd better get her something pretty expensive this year. Otherwise, she might stop doing all the stuff that she does. She might stop setting up all the chairs for board meetings and cleaning up the kitchen all the time and spreading poison on the ant mounds in the yard. We, we don't want her to start slacking off. So let's make her feel indebted to us. Shall we do that? So let's give her something really expensive. Now, is that a gift of appreciation? No. That is a gift of manipulation. We're trying to get something from her. Okay, husband, if you get your wife a flower bouquet for her anniversary because you want her to let you play golf the next day, or maybe simply to stay out of the doghouse because you forgot her birthday? How does that show love and appreciation? It doesn't. You're manipulating. You're trying to get something from her, right? Now, worship is different than appreciation, but it's a pretty related concept if you think about it. Worship is like appreciation on steroids, right? It's like really big appreciation. When you show appreciation to someone, it's an expression that you value them and their contribution. Worship is really the ultimate appreciation. It's it's the declaration of the ultimate value. The thing or person that you are worshiping is to you the thing of greatest value in the world, the thing of ultimate worth. So let me change the illustration a little bit to move it toward worship, and let me give you maybe a, a scenario that some of you have lived through or experienced in your life and in your family at one time or another, maybe even recently. Let's say that you and your family haven't really been walking with the Lord recently. In fact, you haven't come to church in a long time. 
your prayer life is kind of feeble, almost non-existent. Uh, God has become kind of an afterthought around your home. And you've noticed, coincidentally, that things are not going particularly well for you. You're at a financial low point. Maybe your marriage is not in the greatest place. Maybe you've had some other painful setbacks in your life recently. And you think to yourself, you know what? We really need to get back in church. We, we need to pray more. Maybe we need to start giving to God. Um, we need to make more of an effort to connect with God somehow. And okay, I'll be the first to say it. That's a good idea. That's a really good idea. But here's the question. Why exactly are you doing it? Why are you doing it? You see, there are two possible reasons here, and the difference between them might seem really subtle, but it's actually incredibly important. Are you coming back to God because of God himself, because you value God himself, or because you value what you want him to do for you, that you want him to fix your life? Are you declaring God's value, or are you looking to acquire something from him that you really value more than him? Are you appreciating him, or are you manipulating him? Are you worshiping him, or are you maybe using him? You see, God doesn't need your church attendance. He doesn't. He doesn't need your prayer. He doesn't need your money. Yes, he's been trying to get your attention, I agree. And he does want to connect with you. He wants a relationship with you. But he wants to do this for your sake, not for any need of his that you are able to meet. He loves you. He wants you to find your identity and your purpose and your greatest satisfaction in Him personally above and beyond the things that He can give you. He wants your love. He wants your worship. He doesn't need you bargaining with Him for blessings. That's not how He works. Now you might say, well, I'm not really sure what my motivations are. It seems like it's maybe some of both. How do I know whether I'm coming back to God for God Himself, or, or am I coming back to God so that God will, will solve my problems or do something for me? Well, there's an easy way to find out. If God does solve your problems, do you hang around? Or, ask yourself this, what will you do when God doesn't solve your problem? Or, at least not you know, according to your expected timetable and methods, you don't get the promotion. Your marriage doesn't start to heal right away. The answer doesn't come in your time or on your terms. Then what will you do? Then how will you respond? Because I'll tell you, right now, you're pretty much in the place where Cain found himself. Because God didn't look with favor upon your offering, it looks like. Well, what did Cain do? What did Cain do? Cain got angry. He got resentful, he got sullen toward God for holding out on him, and he got violently envious of his brother who was enjoying God's approval. You see, if Cain had really loved and valued God, and not just what God could do for him, he would not have responded in this way. Cain's problem was not necessarily the quality of his offering so much as it was the character of his heart, because Cain, because Cain was apparently worshiping God grudgingly, perhaps even doing the minimum to kind of buy God off or stay out of the doghouse, he got angry when God refused to be manipulated. And although God graciously warned him about this anger and what it could do to him, he let it fester, he let it take over his life, and he ended up killing the brother who joyfully gave God his very best and whose very existence had been a constant rebuke to him as if that would somehow solve the problem. To worship God, to worship God is to declare that he himself 
is the highest value in your life. Higher than any of the good things he has given you or could give you. And if you really knew him, here's the thing, if you really knew him, you would find him to be so compelling, so beautiful, so, so satisfying in himself, so trustworthy, so faithful, that you would be able to face temporary disappointment and wait for his blessings to materialize without becoming anger, angry and bitter toward him in the meantime when he doesn't operate according to your timetable and your expectations. God is good and God is loving and God delights meeting the needs of his people in his time and in his way. And his way is the best way, which is not always the way that we ask for it or expect it. Now let's get back to the story because it takes a rather unexpected turn. God here shows incredible mercy to Cain. Now we're going to come back to, at the end as to why that can happen. But, but Cain ends up founding the, words, the world's first city. Do you notice that? And Cain's descendants begin to really flourish. We see several generations go by here. But remember, people are not only having lots and lots and lots of kids, they're also living for like hundreds of years. So you can imagine the number of people on earth is growing exponentially, growing very rapidly here. The second half of this chapter deals in a, just incredible Details some amazing accomplishments, including the beginning of animal husbandry, metalworking, music, and perhaps even a rudimentary form of, of justice system. Now, this Lamech guy at the end, the one that killed the guy and had the two wives and all, he seems like a big, arrogant jerk, right? He, he probably is. Um, but he is going to a kind of logic here to justify what he's done, his action in taking someone's life. His reasoning goes something like this. He says, you know, if Cain is protected by being avenged sevenfold, if anyone kills him, <clears throat> then I deserve even more protection than Cain. Because while Cain killed Abel for no good reason, my guy needed killing. That's the southern defense, by the way. We were warned about that when we moved here. He needed killing as a valid defense in some places. But that's what Lamech says. This guy wounded me first. Now, we don't know what the injury was or how bad it was, but that's what Lamech appeals to. Now, we, we still kind of have trouble with this, right? Because we, we tend to frown on this kind of vigilante justice. and It seems kind of over the top. It seems a bit off. It seems like it's kind of a twisted sort of justice, and it is. But maybe this gives us a hint as to what is truly happening in Cain's city, and maybe just a parallel to some things we see happening in our world today. <clears throat> in these verses in chapter 4, humanity is rapidly developing what we now call culture. And it seems as if all the movers and shakers in this culture, all the influencers, to use today's popular term, all the inventors, all the people that are doing great things are all part of the line of Cain. These are the achievers. These are the people who are changing the world. There's a ton of progress going on in the world, and yet there is something glaringly absent from all this culture building, though we don't really notice it until we get to verses 25 and 26. The language that Eve uses to describe the birth of her son Seth is very different, as we said, than what she said about Cain. Seth's name suggests the word, the Hebrew word appointed. He was appointed. He was a gift. He was not acquired by Eve. Rather, he was given by God. The emphasis has changed. And we see now that the line of Seth is going to be inclined toward relating to God rather than toward boasting in human achievement because it says now that men begin to call upon the name of the Lord to call upon the name of the Lord. What does that mean? We sang that a lot today, right? I'm calling on the God of Jacob, the God of Moses. What does it mean to call upon God's name? 
Why do people call upon God's name? Well, lots of different reasons. It's all over the Bible, right? Sometimes for protection, sometimes for deliverance from their enemies, sometimes for justice, sometimes for guidance, sometimes for provision, sometimes it's just, it's just an effort for God to come close to you or to ask him to reveal something to you about himself. We call upon God for many different reasons. People in the Bible did, and so can you. You can call upon God for any reason. You can invite God into any area of your life and ask for his help and ask for his guidance in anything that you do, and you can give him the credit for anything that he allows you to accomplish, which is to say you can worship God. You can worship God in every area of your life, not just in a formal Sunday morning worship service or in times of personal devotion. The whole thing can be worship. Romans 12.1, very famous verse in the New Testament, tells us that in view of God's mercy toward us, we can and should offer our bodies to God as a living sacrifice. And then it says, that is your spiritual act of worship. Well, since my body is an important part of my life, right? Is your body a pretty important part of your life? Yeah, it is. I mean, it hangs around with me pretty much wherever I go. And, and so w- what that tells me, though, from Romans 12.1 is that pretty much whatever I'm doing, this tells me that anything I do in this body can be an act of worship. I also see this in verses like uh, 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says that I'm to glorify God with everything that I do with uh, Colossians 3.17, which says that whatever I do, I should do it in Jesus' name, giving thanks to God the Father through him. These are verses that talk about ultimate worship being part of life, everyday life. Now, what does that mean for my everyday life? What does it mean for my Monday morning that I can worship God with my whole life? What does it look like? Does it mean that I'm constantly talking to God and praying to him and singing to him no matter what I'm doing? You know, you're sitting in the office, you're at school, you're you know, in the job, and you're like, great is thy faithfulness all day long. No, I don't think so. Because I don't think it glorifies God not to give my full attention to a task that I'm performing. I don't think it glorifies God to not give my attention to someone with whom I'm supposed to be having a conversation. However, it does mean this. Worshiping God with my whole life does mean this. It means that I can cultivate an awareness of God's presence whatever I'm doing and wherever I go. Think about it. God is different from all your other friends. Maybe in a whole lot of ways, but one way God is different from all your other friends is that he can always be there, and he is always there. He's omnipresent, right? So wherever you go, there's God. So what if you made it your goal to be aware of God's presence in your life all the time? Now, most of the time, that's going to be kind of in the background. He has the prerogative to jump to the foreground and to arrest your attention whenever he needs to. And you have, the, you have the option of calling upon him anytime and bringing him to the foreground. But his presence is always there for you to celebrate, to talk with him, to thank God. That's a huge one. And whatever you're doing, to call upon his name. So if you're at work, if you're at school, does this mean you know, okay, I'm going to worship God with my life. Does that mean that I try to be the best witness for Christ that I can be, and I try to speak to my friends and co-workers about Jesus when I get the chance? Sure it does. Does it mean that when I face difficult issues, I have to do it like with integrity and patience and kindness and joy? Yes. But you know what it also means? It means doing your job well. It means doing your homework well even when you're not interacting with anybody else, even when there's no one else there, because you know that God sees your diligence and he appreciates it even if no one else does. It can be an act of worship. It also means celebrating the fact that God gave you your job, gave you your position wherever you are, and that God 
has given you the special abilities to carry out what he's told you to do. But what about other times? Let's take it a little bit further, okay? Because it's getting scary here. What about when you're just goofing off? Can you goof off to God's glory? What about your hobbies? What about your pastimes and the things that you do in your spare moments? Can they be done as an act of worship? Let me stretch it farther. Can you watch TV and play video games to the glory of God? That's an open question, right? You have to think about that one. Here's a principle, though, based on the 1 Corinthians verse, the Colossians verse in here that I would like to put before you. Here's the principle. Any activity wholesomely enjoyed in the proper proportion to the rest of your life can be done to God's glory. Any activity, I'm going to say it again because there's some qualifiers there, right? Any activity wholesomely enjoyed in the proper proportion to the rest of your life can be done to God's glory. Now, what do I mean when I say wholesomely enjoyed, okay? When you see wholesome, think maybe holy, okay? Uh, I, I can pretty much guarantee you that you cannot watch Game of Thrones or play Grand Theft Auto to the glory of God because of the inherent gross level of immorality in these entertainments. Now, I'm sorry to be such a Puritan. I'm sorry to be such a legalist, okay? But people, let's get a clue. And even if things are not full of that kind of stuff, if any of these things, even the good things, become addictive or all-consuming, or if you do it so much that you become an out-of-shape couch potato because of them and you're sitting on the couch all the time, I, I hope that you realize that's not offering your body as a living sacrifice. I just bring it into my life. I happen to be kind of a crossword puzzle fanatic. Right? I, 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 that's a nerdy pastime, to be sure, and I've gotten embarrassingly good at it. But I find crosswords to be very relaxing and very enjoyable. I would do like a, almost a crossword a day if I had time. And when I do this, I'm not interacting with anybody else when I do it. It's just me and the crossword puzzle. Occasionally, if I find a really clever clue, I'll, I'll yell to Dawn across the room and say, hey, honey, how about this one? And she'll say, yes, dear, that's very nice. <laughs> now, I like crosswords, but what, what if this hobby grows out of proportion? If I start doing them for hours a day, or if it becomes an addiction that I can't resist, you know, then I'm not glorifying God with it. Or if it gets in the way of more productive things that I should be doing. You know, if my, my non-Christian neighbor comes by and wants to talk about spiritual things, and I say, well, tell you, wait a half an hour, I've got to finish the crossword, okay? That would be an issue. How could I possibly do that in Jesus' name? On the other hand, if I enjoy this pastime for what it is, it's a hobby, it's a pastime, it's relaxation, enjoy it in its proper place in life. I can celebrate the fact that God has given me a mind that enjoys puzzles and wordplay and clever clues and learning new things. I can thank God that, that some, he gave some nerdy genius who's a lot smarter than I am somewhere the ability to create this puzzle in the first place. I can refresh myself in this way in Jesus' name, recognizing the goodness of God in all things, even in my hobbies. What if J-Ball to go back to Genesis 4 here, had sought the Lord's direction in tending his, his livestock and given God the credit for the multiplication of his herds? What if Jubal and his family had specifically sought to honor God with all their musical compositions and performances? What if, what if Tubal Cain had clearly recognized God's handiwork in providing the raw materials for his metalworking and seen God as the source of inspiration and ingenuity for all this technology he was creating? In fact, Lamech himself. What if Lamech had sought God's wisdom in administering justice instead of just taking matters into his own hands and then boasting about it. But it appears these things were not happening. Why? Because these men were not calling upon the name of the Lord. They were just boasting in their own achievements. And as a result, 
as a result, now see if this rings any bells, what we have over time here is a society that is making all sorts of amazing cultural and technological progress, but that is also becoming increasingly arrogant, violent, and godless. I'm sure we have nothing at all in common with these people today, right? And the way I read the first few verses of Genesis chapter 6, which are weird verses, okay, but the way I read them, I'm almost certain this is what happened, that the line of Cain, the line of Cain, in addition to driving the culture, also had some incredibly beautiful women. And the godly men of the line of Seth could not resist intermarrying with them, and the influence went, as it often does, in the wrong direction, the result being that evil began to proliferate throughout the whole human race in Seth's line as well as in Cain's, and the weight of human sin finally became so heavy that God had no choice but to do something radical about that, and so he did that in chapter 6 with the flood that we might or might not talk about next week. It's a big story. For now, we only have one more question to answer, which is this. Why did God show mercy to Cain? Why did God show so much mercy to Cain? How could he do this? God not only listens to Cain's plea for relief, not only spares his life, but he even really relents from his threat to make him an outcast, and he allows him to found a whole new community, a whole city. This seems so incongruous. How can God treat Cain so kindly when, as he says himself, Abel's innocent blood is crying out from the ground to him? For that matter, how can God treat us with mercy and kindness and grace when we so often come to him with the wrong motives? How can God have mercy on us when we so often worship him with a divided heart, when we so often try to use him to get what we want and then fail to thank him when he helps us? How can he forgive us when we ignore him in making our plans? We so often neglect to give him preeminence in many parts of our lives. How can God forgive Cain? How can God forgive us? The answer is this. Abel's blood is not the only blood crying out from the ground. The Bible says this explicitly. In the New Testament book of Hebrews, in verse 24 of chapter 12, the author makes a point of saying that the blood of Jesus, the blood of Jesus speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. Now, what does that mean? Well, as, as the blood of Abel soaked into the ground after his death, it cried out to God for justice, for vengeance. But as the blood of Jesus fell from his body and soaked that ground at the base of his cross, that blood cried out for forgiveness and mercy. You see, Jesus has taken upon himself all the vengeance, all the payback, all the justice, all of God's righteous anger directed at our sin. And so Jesus can actually call out for God to forgive his murderers while they're actually nailing the stakes into his hands and feet. He can also appear before God and does on our behalf when we fail to honor God, when we fail to put him first, when we fail to give glory to God for our accomplishments, even when we get sullen and angry at God for not playing by our rules and doing what we wanted. And Jesus can point to his hands and his feet before the Father, and he pleads for our forgiveness. And his blood is powerful enough that we are forgiven. We are forgiven. So where are you today? 
Are you at the point of bargaining with God for blessings or relief? Or are you at the point of, of falling before God and just asking for His mercy because you know that's what you need? The only way to find forgiveness is to fall upon God's mercy in Christ, and the only way to do that is, first of all, to admit that you need mercy because you're a sinner. So rather than denying our sin and selfishness, or on the other hand, falling into despair because we're just so sinful, we are free to bring all of this to God because His love is great. His mercy endures forever for those who belong to Him. And when we truly begin to understand that, then we'll really be able to worship Him, right? Let's pray.